Hi, this is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds. And I'm Carly Malcolm, lead for North Carolina Fellow for Guilford County from the UNC School of Government. And welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. Have you ever lost a loved one and had to figure out what to do? Have you ever felt alone and overwhelmed? Did it make you wonder why on earth this is all so complicated? In this podcast series, we bring together community partners to talk unapologetically about issues of death and dying. We answer questions about funerals, hospice, estates, and more to give our listeners the knowledge they need to make decisions for themselves and their loved ones. We want everyone in Guilford County to know that they're supported, that we live in a community where we cannot only live and live well, but when we die, we can also die well because we care. So we thank you for joining us for the Good Grief Podcast and for taking this step to be better prepared for end-of-life challenges. Well, welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. I'm Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Registered Deeds. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Brooks Johnson, who is the clinical chaplain at Wake Forest Baptist Health, the High Point Medical Center over in High Point. also have Carly Malcolm, who's with me today. She is with the Lead for NC program, is going to be working with Registered Deeds over the year for special projects. She's done a lot of work on the End of Life program, graduate of Clemson University. She's going to be chiming in with some questions as we go along. And so I want to welcome Carly in terms of being part of the podcast series and Brooks Johnson. Jeff, good to see you. Good to see you. Brooks is, uh, I, I was joking with him earlier, he's a little bit of a second fiddle. His wife, Catherine Johnson, is a fellow Guilford County Department Director uh, with the Family Justice Center, does an outstanding job there. And uh, as as I have my wife, who is a principal and doing an outstanding job, too. So we share that in common. We have very strong wives. and Yes, uh, yes, we do. Yeah. So um, anyway, we thought it would be a good idea to get a a voice who is kind of on the ground in one of the hospitals in the chaplaincy program. And it was great to be able to connect with you, Brooks. And so today, I think what we're just going to do is get to know you a little better and talk about what influenced you in pursuing a chaplaincy program, some of the things that you do over at the High Point Medical Center, and, uh, you know, talk about end of life issues. And so again, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate continuing the conversation that we started quite candidly. I don't remember how long ago it was, since a lot has happened <laughs> between that conversation and now. Yeah, we got that COVID reality going on. Yes, um, we do. And I'm sure that's impacted your work, too. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I just want to get to know you a little bit, if sure. you could let everyone know, where are you from? What What kind of influenced you in terms of your background to pursue being a chaplain? Sure. Well, thanks for that. Especially today, it occurred to me this morning as I woke up. Today, of course, is September 11th, and I was born and raised in Long Island, New York. And uh, while I did my undergraduate degree at Campbell University, I moved back to New York post-college to just begin my life and career. And uh, I was in ministry at the time, youth ministry to be specific, during 9-11 when that occurred uh, that day, 2001. And, um, you know, I will never forget. It's just etched in my brain where I was, what I was doing. Again, I was in youth ministry, so I wasn't in the city. Uh, I was often in the city with my job because I worked a lot with the youth ministry in the city, to be short. And so what I distinctly remember, which is typical of New York in the late summer, early fall, the weather was just outstanding, you know, very low humidity and crystal clear. And so that is to say, 
while I was approximately, you know, 30 miles outside of Manhattan, I remember stopping on the side of the highway with tons of cars that were parked on the highway, just seeing the plumes of smoke still fill the crystal clear blue sky. And as I always kind of pause and say my prayers, I just, I thought about it today and being with you, Jeff, and I thought about truthfully how it was such a juxtaposition that day. You had this absolutely beautiful day where you're, if you're on Long Island, you perhaps are breathing in the Atlantic Sea air, feeling the crispness and anticipation of the autumn. Uh, lots of things going on, the beginning of the school year, you know, so on and so forth. For me, being a Giants fan, thinking about mm. the beginning of the NFL year uh, and Big Blue. But more seriously, you know, what I took away from that was just how death really is always around us. It's not a glamorous topic that we don't particularly like to talk about. But in part, that's why, Jeff, I appreciate what you've been doing with this Good Grief series is talking about things that are difficult. And so that's a kind of a maybe a interesting segue into what compels me is that we are on this journey together, regardless of who we are and what we do, frankly, regardless of what our faith or our beliefs are. We are on this journey together. And I just continually find ever since September 11, 2001, really beforehand and after, that we are better when we learn how to journey together, mm. when we learn and identify what we have in common versus what makes us different. Yeah. And so many of us wake up every day and we look at the clear blue sky and think, wow, this is a great day. Yeah. And then several hours later, we have a loved one who has a heart attack or, exactly um, right. or something traumatic happens, a car accident, something like that. You end up in your position as a chaplain dealing with those situations every single day yeah. and dealing with families that are in crisis. Not, and sometimes it's long-term illness, illness yeah. that people are going through, but sometimes it's yeah. something that just happens out of the blue, and it happens in ways that we have to immediately respond to. So right. being a chaplain, did you go to seminary, I guess? Yeah, so kind of continuing um, what you asked first, uh, you know, ministry took me from Long Island, New York, to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I moved in 2003. Uh, again, I was still in youth ministry at that time, really contemplating my future. And yes, to answer your second question, I ended up, as I was kind of grappling with, okay, what am I going to do in my ministry future, going to Wake Forest University School of Divinity. I'm a very proud graduate, excellent program. I felt like I was really there at the peak of, as they were blooming into who they are now. I, I literally uh, graduated on the 10th year anniversary of that school. And it was during that time, it was uh, 2007, 2008, when I did my first unit of what is called CPE, or Clinical Pastoral Education. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I'm particularly proud of as an Episcopalian, so I'm an ordained Episcopal deacon, for whatever that means to anybody, um, I'm still trying to figure it out yet, or <laughs> figure out how to spell it. But uh, seriously, one of the things that I'm most proud of in that tradition is that anyone seeking any level of ordination is asked to do one unit of clinical pastoral education. And the reason for that, I believe, is because it is not only dealing with some difficult stuff, but in dealing with that difficult stuff, you're really leaning into learning more about who you are at the deepest of levels. And I was one of those individuals that when I did my unit, I just could not wait for the next one. A lot of times you kind of hear the spectrum, people do it and they're like, okay, boy, I'm glad that's over with. 
But I was one of those who really leaned into it, and I really appreciated so much of what it taught me. And so that really helped to form my path towards chaplaincy specifically. So I finished my degree at Wake Forest in 2009, and I had applied and uh, did my residency at Wake Forest Baptist Health, or what people love to call the Baptist. Uh, So I did a year-long residency there in chaplaincy, and so I did three more units of clinical pastoral education. Graduated in in 2010, Um, and then I have another small degree from Virginia Theological Seminary up in Alexandria, and then that kind of led me kind of to High Point, and I started off at High Point Medical Center. Actually, I've been there long enough where it was still just traditionally a community hospital when I started. That was before UNC Healthcare managed it. And I started doing, you know, the night shift, basically. I was an on-call chaplain, and I worked, you know, multiple days a week at night, covering the nighttime, and and, uh, got my foot in the door, and here I am eight years later. Wow. So in faith settings, you have pastors, reverends, rectors, imams. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You've got, uh, you know, Jewish leaders. (laughs) Chaplain. Yeah. What is a chaplain? I'm glad you asked. And I also, I have to say, it's funny to say, So technically, you could call me the Reverend Brooks Johnson, or you could call me Father Brooks. But in the hospital, especially here in the Bible Belt, when people see me show up, they say, oh, pastor, what's going on, pastor? (laughs) Um, I have several staff members who I've got good relationships with, and they love to call me preacher. How's it going, preacher? (laughs) Preacher. Um, But when I show up, particularly in our inpatient psych unit, which is one of my care areas and I lead group, I always introduce myself as the chaplain. And then I try to just break the ice and say, after a pause, does everybody know what a chaplain is? And a lot of people shake their head yes, and whether they do or not, I kind of just gently go into, well, technically I'm an ordained minister in the Christian tradition specifically, but I choose to serve in this congregation. And I use that word intentionally because hmm. I'm really honored that I have the opportunity to journey with people from all walks of life, uh, really from all over the globe, even in little old High Point. And, you know, as a chaplain, what I do is regardless of their faith tradition or where they come from, I just journey with them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so your your congregation, so to speak, is a group that yeah. uh, you're providing support to across faiths Absolutely. and cultures. Absolutely. Uh, uh, different, you know, religious beliefs. Some have none. Everybody's Absolutely. dealing with crisis. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and you walk in the door of a patient's room and you also are with doctors and nurses and and a whole institution is there trying to help take care of people. Yes. And so what triggers a chaplain to become involved in situations at the, at the hospital? Sure. Good question. You know, the, the, the formal way to answer that is because I am a clinician and I'm part of patient care, active patient care, I'm a patient-facing staff member, I get referrals, you know, in a way that doctors or nurses would where people put orders in. So they put a pastoral care order in, or sometimes people get confused. They call it a pastoral care order or a spiritual care order. Either one's the same thing. Goes through the computer charting system. And that is a way for us to be made aware that either the patient has requested something for us or uh, that staff have asked for us to be involved in that patient's care. So it could be anything from talking about issues of spirituality or talking about their faith or, you know, perhaps, as you might guess, their crisis of faith in this particular healthcare moment. Or it could be, you know, talking about 
their plan of care. And Jeff, as you and I had talked about prior, I'm very pleased that I'm a part of the palliative care team at our hospital. And, you know, palliative care, very quickly, the way we approach it in the hospital is, I think, a broader way of meeting patients' needs by talking about, after identifying their diagnosis, talking about, you know, what is it that their goals are? Mm. You know, not just their short-term goals, but perhaps their long-term goals, regardless of length of time that they may have to live. Palliative care does not always mean hospice care or end-of-life care, but it does mean looking at a person holistically and not just identifying their medical problems, but how can they, how can we address their medical problems in the context of what they wish to accomplish, if you want to use that term, what their goals are when they're discharged from the hospital. So it's maximizing the input of the patient. Yeah. Um, looking at both their spiritual needs, their healthcare experience. What is it that they're dealing with at that given moment? You know, processing what is happening. Yes. Um, looking at their human needs, anger, doubt, hope. Yep. The emotional tolls. And like I said, you're dealing with families yep. as well yep. uh, in those yep. situations. Yeah. A lot to deal with. You're yeah. kind of like a jack of all trades. Yeah. Jeff, if I could, I, I really liked your choice of word. What triggers the chaplain to be involved? Yeah. You know, for me, I feel like, Speaking for myself, I feel like one of the things that I can bring to the hospital setting is a presence for which I can function really listening, really listening to what's going on. So what I mean by listening is not just with my ears, but with my eyes. Uh, so for example, when I make rounds currently with our ICU team, you know, I'm looking at the doctors, the nurses, the social workers, their body language. You know, when they show up at the door of that patient, you know, are they kind of chipper and bright because they already kind of have a sense of the plan of care or the outlook? Or are they, frankly, right now in this pandemic, are they just tired and these are difficult cases and, okay, how are we going to solve whatever problems present themselves today? Um, you know, so listening between the lines, like what, what is said or what is not said, or how do people engage with patients or family, or do they not? So, you know, I think triggers is a great word, because I always, triggers, for me, I hear that word and I think, okay, well, it's important for me to be alert wherever I am and wherever I go, whether that's a patient room, or quite frankly, whether that's a cafeteria. Some of the most powerful conversations I've had with staff are right outside the cafeteria. Because I ask them how they're doing, and they know that I take that quite seriously, and I'm going to carve out time to listen to their response. And then those who know me well know that, depending on their response, I'm going to say, well, let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. So that has led to some really, really good conversations. So, you know, triggers is, for me, just being aware. Like I said, you know, we're on this journey together. So if we can kind of talk, communicate, then we can be better off. Excellent. Yeah. Right. So you're involved with a lot of different people going through these really difficult experiences. Um, What's your approach to spiritual care when you're dealing with people who are in times of crisis and grief? Thanks for that uh, question, Carly. I I never presume someone's faith. Frankly, I never presume someone's spirituality. So I look at it from the standpoint of I'm partly there because of my faith and my spirituality and how I feel I represent God. And i my personal as well as my spiritual beliefs are we are all created in the image of God. Some of us know it, some of us don't. 
how it is we journey, as I've already said, and discover that or are in tune with that or are even simply introduced to that, I kind of feel like that's where I'm at when I maneuver through the hospital. So what I always take in consideration first and foremost is that a patient, a family member, or again, even a staff member, they're humans. They're humans first. And they have feelings. And they have feelings based on what's going on with them, of course, in a hospital setting, most oftentimes medically. And so how can I connect with them in a way to quickly build rapport and see where it is that I can be present to help them unpack anything, whether that is of a spiritual nature or not, perhaps. And sometimes, Jeff, you and I talked about uh, like advanced care planning and thinking about healthcare powers of attorney or living wills and stuff like that. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit today, too. Yeah. Um, but sometimes doing that kind of stuff is a pathway to talking about spirituality. You know, thinking about, for example, with a healthcare power of attorney, who are those people that you trust the most in your life that you would want to make decisions for you when you were cognitively not able to make decisions? That, of course, it can be a springboard for, you know, family history, which oftentimes can include, you know, a person's spiritual upbringing. So it's not unusual for, for those things to kind of segue uh, into much bigger conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and then I always try to follow the patient or family member's lead. So again, going back to the listening or the triggers, like what, what do I hear in their description of their upbringing? Do they talk about um, going to a particular church or being a part of a particular faith community? Uh, was that important to them? Was that important to their parents? How might it be important to them now? Or how might oftentimes have... People been raised in the church. Uh, I find this a lot here, or at least in my setting, raised in the church, and then they kind of went away from the church for a while. Uh, but now they're kind of contemplating perhaps not the church, but maybe God. Uh, and a lot of times that is, you know, brought on by their particular condition. Mm. Right. Yeah, there's a comment that of uh, somebody called some folks used to be's. I used to be a yeah. Baptist. I used to be this yeah. or that or the other. But then you're in the hospital and you really just want to have a conversation or a connection with someone to talk about what you're dealing with and the meaning of all of it yeah. and to figure out what, what that then means for for you. And I think what I'm hearing is you do a lot of listening. You ask a lot of questions. You're trying to do it in a way that you're trying to figure out what is important for that person and provide that type of support. And you're almost doing triage. You're doing, you're, you're dealing with a lot of situations, a lot of people. It's always different. And people are, uh, come at things in entirely different ways sometimes. I know when, when we talk about religious faith and spirituality, there's a joke. <laughs> there's a joke about what you get 10 religious people and you get 12 opinions <laughs> about, yeah, right. about their approach and yeah. how they're dealing with. And so yeah. we're always processing within that space and right. to be able to build the relationship, to develop the trust. Yeah. And the support yeah. that people need, whether it's spiritual, religious uh, support, emotional support. And, you know, and people say, you know, all of that can relate to the physical body. You yeah. know, it helps you um, have a sense of wellness in right. that situation. And so what are some common situations that you see with patients at the hospital when they come in in terms of, of what they're dealing with and what they're dealing with with their loved ones? I think. So often, you know, patients come in, again, regardless of what the diagnosis is, and the underlying kind of 
thing that we as chaplains deal with is how that intersects with, okay, where they are, are they going to heal, get better, whatever we define healing as. And then based on kind of that information, how do they wrestle with their own kind of past? You know, how do they come to terms with perhaps what they did or what they didn't do? Um, And that could be as simple as, well, you know, I don't have a good history with a PCP, you know, my doctor, my everyday doctor, I don't go see the doctor. And, you know, this is a result of that. Or, you know, I've got all these bad habits. And this is a result of that. Um, Or it can be quite big as in, you know, from a spiritual standpoint, well, this is the result of my not being faithful, which is really heavy and frankly, really difficult. Mm -hmm. Do you have um, a lot of similarities or situations in terms of actual end of life situations where people are dealing with the immediacy of death. What do you see in some of those situations that are common? You know, what I see, I tend to gravitate towards the positive, even in the midst of death, which is obviously heavy enough. We don't need to add to its weight. And so what I often see that I just think is beautiful and honestly compels me to say that death is a really sacred moment, regardless of your faith tradition, what I see is oftentimes people reconciling, reconciling with family members perhaps reconciling with God, or truthfully, reconciling with themselves. You know, learning how in some way, whether they even use this language, forgiving themselves for past wounds, hurts that they have inflicted on others or that have been inflicted on them. And to me, that's one of the most, that's what makes death oftentimes this sacred moment. You know, Jeff, as a jokester, uh, you know well, uh, the joke, you know, death and taxes, right? Oh, and we're going to have the tax director. Uh, he's committed to being a part. There you go. There you ben go. Ben Chavis with Guilford County. So there we're going to talk about death and taxes. Death and taxes. There you go. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's going to happen to us all. We can't avoid it. If you haven't already, you could easily devote a podcast to, you know, what society tells us, which is we should look a certain way, be a certain way, have this, have that. What do we define as success? So on and so forth. But in the end, we have the opportunity, you you use the word, Jeff, to be in relationship. And oftentimes in death, what I see are relationships that may have been, had a tremendous amount of pain inflicted upon them for which they have been separate for so long. And then somehow they come to reconcile. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So you spoke earlier about how in your approach you keep people's humanity in mind, mm-hmm. but you're human too. So mm-hmm. oh, yeah. what kind of support is there for you and for other staff <laughs> who are you know helping people go through such heavy topics? Yeah. Thanks for asking that question because one of the things I, I do have to say, I've got a fantastic mentor uh, who's become a good friend, who is my colleague at High Point Medical Center. Um, his name is Joseph. He's the other chaplain that's there during the day. He's been there uh, almost 20 years. And so he, when I started about eight years ago, really gave me the green light to think about how it is that we intentionally care about staff. Because most people, going back to how do you define a chaplain, most people think about, well, that's the minister who shows up when someone's dying. And fortunately, that is only one of so many things that we do in the hospital. And so I see it as 
you know, how we care for each other as staff members really has everything to do with how effectively we care for our patients and families. So to answer that question, you know, we created a space in the hospital that we call the Oasis. It's a space that's designed specifically for respite for staff only. Um, and in there, I have all kinds of things like, you know, I've got manipulatives, like we've got Play-Doh in there, coloring books and crayons. Uh, like I have a lap labyrinth, so you can trace it with your finger. So you could do it if you wanted to with your eyes closed. There is a small pewter labyrinth that has kind of like a, uh, a uh, stylus with it, and you can trace that. We have kind of other manipulatives in there, like games and different things to kind of alleviate the mind from the challenges that perhaps you've been facing. There are all kinds of books, books particularly on poetry in there. You know, I find poetry a wonderful way to welcome people to contemplate, think, reflect in a non-threatening way. We've got some comfortable lounge chairs, you know, yoga tools, you know, things to stretch with. And, you know, there's a little uh, a fountain and kind of different things like that. So that's a space that's used. Um, I'm often welcome to do things like blessing of hands for different staff members. So that's where, for me, uh, what I like to do is I bring a seashell. As I mentioned, growing up on Long Island, I've, I've always been surrounded by water. And so when I was a kid, I used to love, you know, collecting seashells. And I have a collection that I've collected from beaches all over the eastern seaboard. And so I've used those from anything from baptisms to blessing of hands. So I bring the seashell. I have some herbal oils, some essential oils that I keep in my office. And I fill the shell with the oil and I, you know, talk about creation, talk about how we are an active part of creation, specifically staff. And so therefore staff are giving of themselves to care for others. And so it's a very symbolic blessing of who they are because through their hands, they are showing their spirit, their care of others. So that is amazing. It's cool. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. It's it's real touching. And that's another thing that opens the door for people to kind of see who we are as chaplains and not just uh, sitting with patients and families, but really being there for them. And um, oftentimes that can lead to follow up conversations about, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I mean, in terms of wellness in, in employees uh, and doc, like I said, doctors and nurses and support staff who are there and their job is to care mm -hmm. every single day. Yeah. Um, for the wellness of hard. people who are coming in, I imagine incredibly hard. The support network and something as simple as blessing hands. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. What have you learned about yourself? You've been there for what, eight years? <laughs> yeah, almost eight years. Almost eight years. And I've learned that I'm passionate about helping people. You know, when we were talking about kind of getting into all this and I mentioned like my first unit of CPE and kind of wanting to dive into the deep end right away. You know, some people specifically, since we're talking about the hospital, it's like in the ED, people are wired with that kind of rush. You know, nurses and doctors have that rush. You know, they want to be in the midst of the crisis. And I guess in a similar way, that that's kind of where I am. I joke about how the greatest thing about my job is I have no idea what's going to be there when I get there. But I've also learned in time <laughs> that one of the hardest things about my job is I have no idea what's going to be there when I get there. And that's exhausting. You know, while I love caring for others, particularly the staff, I also know that it really is important to care for myself. And sometimes I'm not really great at that. You know, we're all human beings. And so that can be tough. Definitely, definitely. 
So what advice would you give, like, from your perspective as a chaplain um, to people who are coping with grief during this time of a pandemic with all of the added stress and challenges that come with that? You know, I tell people all the time, patients, family, and definitely staff, to just be honest with themselves. Give themselves grace. I find myself saying that a lot lately. Give yourself some grace. Allow yourself to feel. Because, you know, emotions aren't bad things. We, We get scared of them for where they may lead us, but inherently they're not bad things at all. And we need to be in touch with them, right? I tell nurses all the time, it's it's important to have self-awareness. Trust that you're a, a trained professional, you know? There are people around you who, if you are so sad and you're weeping so hard in a patient's room, they'll rescue you and get you out of there. But to be vulnerable enough to share a modicum of emotion with the people that you work with or I believe even the people you work for, that's human. Mm -hmm. And that allows people to also foster some of their own emotions that perhaps are repressed or that they're shielding so much because they're scared. And certainly during this time of a pandemic, uh, I mean, you can feel it around the hospital. People are stressed and they have the right to be stressed. But we, while none of us can predict the future, what we truly have is the present. And the best way for us to be present is to really think about our emotions and honor those emotions in, of course, appropriate ways. So I encourage people to give themselves grace, allow themselves to feel, take a time out when you can or when is appropriate, um, or care for yourself. Yeah, we're going to have additional podcasts that talk about advanced care planning, but I wanted to open that up a little bit to you in terms of, yeah, when we talked earlier in the year, when I went over and visited you, it was, you know, so much of what's going on in our society is is we do have a hard time talking about uh, death and dying and end of life. And so in a lot of cases, you know, it, it hits us in ways at which we may not be prepared. In your experience, how do you see that impacting your role with families and, and people who are coming in and dealing with those kinds of situations in terms of their ability to both understand the bureaucracy of end-of-life planning as it <laughs> right. relates to what you've sure. been talking about the whole time is that yeah. you're dealing with people who are in crisis, you're dealing right. with people who are mourning, right. and dealing with serious illnesses. So in in the world of bureaucracy, I guess, or you know, institutionalism. Which I'm a part of. So. There you go. Or institutionalism, right? I mean, I'm a part of that. Obviously, I work for a hospital in a medical system. And there are, you know, procedures and protocols. And so having things like, you know, advanced directives can be particularly helpful helpful because they are guidelines as to what a person wants or perhaps doesn't want. And so I see it as not another piece of paper to do paperwork. I see it as a pathway into dialogue, into building some relationship. Because as I tell patients and family members, and quite candidly, as I tell staff uh, when it comes up or when they ask me about it, um, you know, one time I was explaining advanced directives to a patient in a unit, and I kind of looked out of my periphery, and I noticed that staff were kind of gathered around. And one physical therapist said, hey, I never even knew what an advanced directive actually was. But the way you explained it, can I do one of those? And so, and the way I explain it is, you know, it's an insurance policy because it ensures what you want to happen to you. What do people often want? They want to be in control, right, of their healthcare. This is a vehicle to be in control when you may not cognitively be able to. So I do take very seriously that it's an opportunity, whether someone completes them or not, sure, I'd love for them to complete them. The hospital would really love for them to complete them. But it's 
it's a pathway to talk about these bigger issues like death or dying. How do you, when or if something happens to you, how do you wish to be treated in those circumstances? And when I kind of couch it that way, it seems like that really opens up into some good conversation. And so there's no question that it helps the patient and the family and the decision makers. And there's no question that it helps the hospital. So I see that as the classic win-win. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. It's been a real interesting conversation in terms of learning what a chaplain is, your approach to spiritual care and what you do there at the hospital. And this has been a really good conversation. Cool. Anything else that you think would be important for people to understand about chaplaincy, about what you do, about how to get additional resources? Sure. What I would say to that, what immediately comes to mind is, again, I've already mentioned him, Joseph, my colleague. He's got so much wisdom and I so enjoy working with him. And, you know, he helped me to realize that, you know, we've had this discussion all the time. Some departments are called pastoral care. Some departments are called spiritual care. Uh, Right now, Wake Forest Baptist Health they have spiritual care and pastoral care under the umbrella of faith health. So they're all these, you know, names. But my boss, you know, we often talk about just being supportive care. And the reason for that is not to, whatever you call it, water it down, but it's to recognize that we are a part of a team approach to contribute to a person's wholeness and their well-being. And that can lead to some serious conversations about a person's spirituality in a very non-threatening way. Or it can get them the care they need, whether that's a palliative care referral, a hospice referral, advanced care planning, or whatnot. So what I'm so appreciative of in being a chaplain is the opportunity to support people. Mm. Well, thank you. And I think that that is is so important in terms of the work that you do as a clinical chaplain. Carly and I definitely appreciate the fact that you've taken the time to come in and talk to us today on this podcast. I think there's a whole lot of really good information, and uh, it's it's quite clear that you have a heart for your work, and I'm glad that you were able to be here with us. Yeah. Well, Jeff and Carly, thank you for your time and your questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Grief Podcast. We want your feedback. You can visit our website at www.guilforddeeds.com. You can also email us at endoflife at guilfordcountync.gov or find us on Twitter with the handle at guilford underscore ROD. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and until next time, take care.